As you're seated, please open the Bible to 1 Peter chapter 2. Open your copy of the Word of God to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be studying verses 9 and 10 this morning, but as we did last week, we're going to read verses 4 through 10 uh, for help with the context. They, they do all go together, and uh, we don't want to separate the, the, the central idea from this paragraph. So, 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And Father, as we have sung and now as we pray, we thank you and we praise you for your mercy. Lord, in your mercy, we pray that you would change us now as we come to your word, that you would make us more like your son and that you would bring us closer together as one, as Jesus prayed, and as it is your will for us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So who are you? Say, who are you? (laughs) That's a question we may not get asked all the time. But depending on where you are, your answer to that question might be a little bit different. If you're at work, your answer to who that question is, who are you, might be your role or your position at your work, what you do there, especially when someone asks you to do something, you know, something a little bit extra, right? Well, that's not me. That's not my job. <laughs> that's somebody else, right? That, I am this, you know, I'm the cook. I'm not the manager. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> that. That's a common answer. But at home, your answer might be different. Well, you know, I'm it's Father's Day, I'm the father, or, you know, I'm the mother, I'm, I'm a child, I'm the firstborn. Um, in some other place, if somebody asks you who you are, you may only just give your name, right? Uh, well, I'm James. But even if that question is not being asked by people, it's a question that many of us wrestle with, and we're continually questioning and answering it in different ways. Think about all the different things that come after I am, all the different ways that we answer that question, who are you, I am, this or that. Contemporary answers by a vocal few in our culture lead with who I am regarding sexuality. I am cisgender. I am some other answer, whatever answer is given. My identity, who I am, is based on simply my gender identity. In fact, that's the language that's used, right? This is, that's how I identify myself, or this is just who I am. Other answers regarding identity, who am I, began and end with 
my race or my color, my nationality. Everything you need to know about me stems from my race or my sexuality or, or my work, right? Or my habits, my hobbies, my abilities or my disabilities, my preferences, my personality. Here's a big one today. I am my psychologically defined conditions, right? <laughs> That's a big one, right? I am OCD. We hear that a lot. I am bipolar. I am this or that, fill in the blank, right? Or an extension of that, I am defined by my personality test, right, that, that uh, assigns me a number or a, a color or a label. And, and my, my existence, my totality for everything that I am is summed up by a number or a color, or a name that seems to resemble me. Therefore, that's who I am. We, we answer this, this question of who am I, who are you, in really um, not sufficient ways, don't we? In, in a lot of ways, all of these answers fall so far short of really describing who we are. They describe things we do, things that we, even that we regularly do, or things that we prefer. Uh, they might describe things that we struggle with or things that we embrace. They may be roles that we fill or historical information that has a bearing on the way we are. But, and many of them are important, some not so much, but none of them really does a very good job of telling us who we actually are, who we really are. See, all of these answers have three wrong priorities in common. They have three priorities that they have in common that are wrongly placed. And the first is the belief that I have the right and the power to define myself. A self-defining priority. I decide who I am, right? Not you, not you, and not God. God does define us in his word. But if you're going to answer that question for yourself, you're going to have to either deny what God's definition is for yourself or Reduce his priority, his definition of who you are, to a lower priority so that your definition can take a higher priority. That's the starting point that leads to many other errors and the next two priority errors in defining ourselves. Another common wrong priority between all of them is that they're based on things that are easy to identify but that are temporary, right? They're changing or they're not identity specific. They have a, a temporal priority. So they're insufficient to answer the question, who am I? It's not true that everybody of this race behaves or speaks this way or that way. So it's not enough to say, I am a race of, of people, right? It's not true that everyone who works for a company, if my identity is in my job, not everybody in that company behaves this way or speaks that way or thinks in a specific way. Identity is not properly defined temporally, right, by temporal things. Finally, they have in common an individualistic priority. And this is where everything is considered from an isolated perspective of me, right? Just me. Who I am is centered solely on me and me alone. And if others seem too similar to me, well, then I'll just invent another identity that I'll assume so that I can be not like other people. And that's a reason that we have that ever-growing list of available genders to choose from. If your identity is a gender and it's too similar to other people, you can make up another one. And that's the aspect of identity that we're considering this morning, this individualistic priority of defining myself. And again, it, just, it stems from the initial belief that I get to choose who I am. I get to decide what my identity is. But again, as soon as I deny God's power to define me or try to diminish his power to define me, it's a slippery slope into whatever I can find, whatever I think that appeals to me for what I can be identified with. 
And it enables that self-focused priority and that individualistic priority in defining who I am. And that individualistic side is very strong in our culture, isn't it? It's not common in our culture for people to answer that question from a perspective of a larger group of people. I just am who I am regardless of anybody else. And even if I find others who define themselves in similar ways, you know, I might go along with them for a little bit of time, but I'm going to look for ways to separate myself and make myself distinct and individual, right? But there's something within us that wants to be part of something bigger than just ourselves. God's placed within us a desire to identify with a group, and when that does happen, even in our culture, it can be a very powerful influence in their life. One group that has done a really good job of reducing the individualistic priority of definition is the U.S. Marine Corps, right? Have you ever met someone who is a Marine or was a Marine? There's no such thing as somebody who was a Marine, right? <laughs> I am a Marine, right? <laughs> somebody said, oorah, right? Or, or something. For many people who join the Marines, they stop being an individual, right? I'm a Marine. Once a Marine, Semper Fidelis, that's their motto, right? Semper Fi. Always faithful, always a Marine. And many of them get tattoos in places or bumper stickers on their cars or they wear hats, right? That becomes who I am, a part of a larger group. A little less on the serious side, a little bit more on the voluntary side is, is our sports team identifications, right? I am a fan of, you know, fill in the blank. And for many years, I was a fan of the Denver Broncos NFL football team. I'm not following the NFL much anymore for various reasons, many of which have to do with identity kind of politics. But I had bought hats when I followed the Denver Broncos, and the hats are really good quality, so I still wear them out and about. And it's funny because somebody who is an avid Broncos fan still will come up to me because they see the hat that I'm wearing, and they'll start talking to me like we've been friends for years. Has, has that happened to you? Like, what do you, think about, what do you think about the decision that we made with the quarterback? And I, I kind of stand there and I, I think for a minute, like, how do I answer that? Because what part of we made any decision about the quarterback for who's playing? And then, and then for two, I just haven't been following it. But just that identity, that, that identifying with somebody else, you know, you automatically assume that you hate all Raiders or Chiefs or Chargers fans, right? I mean, it's, a, it's an identity of a group and it's us versus them. So there is a part of us even in all of our attempts to separate ourselves and be unique, that craves being a part of something else, something, something that's bigger than me. I want to be part of a collective whole. And sometimes we get very strong feelings of belonging and purpose from being part of that group. And, and like we said, those can be very powerful. And if you've ever doubted that, watch a soccer match in Europe or, or in South America or anywhere else in the world. Uh, those are, uh, soccer fans are notorious for the riots that injure or kill fans of opposing teams because we are us and they are them, right? And so we're going to go, there's actually a, a whole term coined for that. It's called soccer hooliganism. I was, I was kind of surprised to hear about it. But really, a serious example was in February of 2012 in Egypt. 74 people were killed and over 500 were injured in a riot that occurred after a soccer match because of identity within this powerful, this powerful identity of a group. And it doesn't just happen with soccer, it happens with football, well, the other football, American football, right, and other sports. But when people assume those identities, 
whether they're personality or gender or sports or whatever it is, when you assume those identities and then you prioritize them over and above God's identity and identification of who we are, whether it leads to riots or hooliganism or not, we have fundamentally misunderstood who we are and what we should be doing in our life and with our life. When we believe we are ultimately defined in certain ways, we will act accordingly, right? Think about the way that you identify yourself or define yourself with your work. If I believe that I'm an employee at this company, but more than that, that I belong here, that I'm defined by this work, and I, I, my identity is with these people in this work, that I'm prone to spending more time at that work than maybe I should, even during off hours, maybe more time than I'm spending with my family. Maybe my mind is always on my work. Maybe I'm constantly drawn to working more. My reason for existence is there, so that's where I want to be, and that's my purpose for living. And that's why it can be so devastating when a job is lost, either through a layoff or moving on to a different job. If you believe that your ultimate and exclusive purpose and identity is as a mother or a father, it's Father's Day, you're going to act and make decisions based on that identity, and you're going to take it very personally when the kids act up, right? I mean, my whole identity is wrapped up in you. I mean, my purpose for existence and being, and now you're, you're acting up, and I can take, I can fall hard, I can have a crash, I can, I can get really upset when the kids act up because my whole identity is wrapped up in who they are and what they're doing. And then, when they grow up and move out, then we're, we get really lost, right? It, it's something that happens and it's very serious for a lot of people. And so whether it's a good thing like a job and, and having a work or being a mother or a father or, or it's a fun thing like sports teams or something obvious like where we're born, when we move identity, whether individually or collectively, into a higher priority than what God intended, confusion and disorder come about and even sin. See, God has explained to us our identity. He's explained to us who we are, as well as our roles and responsibilities in life. So we need to be careful that we don't confuse who we are, our identity, with our roles or history or personality or color or preferences or anything else. Let's understand our identity, who we really are from God's perspective, and then we can talk about the roles that we have and what we should be doing. And you know, our whole identity of who we are before God is really too much to cover this morning. There's so much to who we really are in his scriptures. But here's a summary. Mankind was created in whose image? The image of God. Therefore, all of us, men, women, children, have unique dignity and value from conception to decay. You say, wow, that's a strange way to say that, right? Uh, from the moment you're conceived, you're not conceived as an animal, as a whale or a mouse or an elephant, right? You're conceived as a human being all the way till after you've died. Really, we recognize that we need to treat a human body with respect. So from conception to decay, human bodies, humans have a dignity and a value and a worth. Uh, we were created by God, and so we are created in his image, and therefore we are totally and completely dependent on that God for everything, including telling us who our identity and purpose is, which is to bring glory to that creator, right? That's our purpose. Yet mankind chose sin and rebellion instead of obedience and submission to God. So we have become spiritually dead, unable to please God now. We are sinners, um, and we're worthy of God's judgment now. 
and yet we're still totally dependent on him for everything. Even though we turned from him and sinned against him, every person on this planet is still totally and completely dependent on God to provide sunshine and rain and food and clothing and shelter and all of the things that we need. And he's so good to give us all of that. He's so good to us. But because of our identity as sinners now, our destiny is sin and then punishment. And sin has infected each of us in our mind, our emotions, and our will, and even physically. And so if that's true, that sin has affected us in all of those ways, it stands to reason we're going to mess up when we try to figure out who we are on our own, right? Our default is going to try to be to figure it out apart from God. And so we begin without God. We define ourselves by ourselves. Well, of course, we're going to get it wrong, right? We're going to find all kinds of different ways to define who we are. The only hope for us is in Jesus Christ, God's Son, fully God, fully man. Because of his perfect life, his death, his resurrection, which is applied to us through repentance and faith in him, God works in us, he regenerates us, recreates us, so that we have new life with faith to believe and the ability to repent so that we are transformed into a new identity. We have a new way of answering who am I, not just as a sinner before God unworthy of his grace, we're still unworthy of his grace, but now we are no longer just a sinner under, his, under his, um, his wrath to come. We are saints in him. We're transformed into a new identity individually. But here's what we miss so often. As we started learning last week, our identity also changes collectively with other believers. Rather than just a person who lives in rebellion to God as a sinner, I am changed into a person who desires to love and worship and obey God as part of a collective whole with other believers for God's purposes. Our identity completely changes. And then so does our identity and our destiny to glory and honor instead of to hell and punishment and judgment. But our purpose does not. God actually recreates us from inside so that we're able to fulfill that purpose of bringing glory to our Creator. Isn't that, isn't that an amazing change that he brings about in each of us? Now, it's important to understand that our roles do not change necessarily. You know, you don't stop being a husband or a wife or a child or an employee or any of those things. You don't stop be, doing those things. But everything, all of those things are subservient to our new identity in God's identification of who we are. We're either unbelievers or believers. That's where we start with our identity. And the focus of these verses, you remember in 1 Peter, is our collective identity together and the enormous difference between the two, the believers and the unbelievers. And while it's true that salvation is personal, it's individual, you can't just come in here and become part of us and then therefore get saved. It's a personal relationship. It's an individual decision that you have to make to repent and believe that God brings about within you you also become part of a new identity so that who I am changes again, not just from a sinner to a saint, but also from an individual and rebellious sinner into a part of something much bigger than just me, myself. It, it's a bigger thing. Who, not just who I am anymore, now it's who we are together. So to close out this section of his letter, Peter is going to give us three truths to learn and to keep in mind as we begin to move into the really practical side of this letter. 
What does it look like for believers who are living together and with Jesus as we're being holy, as we're loving one another, as we're being built together? What does all that look like in life? This is how he closes this beginning introductory section. He says, here's more about us. Here's what we need to know. Number one in our notes, we are born into a collective identity. In verse 9, we're, we're born into a collective identity. You look at everything that Peter lists here, the description of our new identity, and it's all concentrated on our being together. He says we are a new race of people. We are a priesthood. We're not just priests, individual. Priesthood together. We're a nation and a people, plural. In other words, the, the words of the New Testament, this collective identity is also known as the church, who we are as a church. And Peter has already said repeatedly in this letter, and other parts of the New Testament teach us that we are born into this new identity as the church, as a collective whole. It's, it's a new thing. It's a new living entity that we become a part of. So if you were to ask God, God, what do you think this church, since this was your idea, and you created this thing, and you're continually creating and, and, and moving and growing this church, how would you describe it? What would you want it to look like? How would God answer the question of who are we together? Well, he, here he does. Here are four descriptions of our new collective identity, our church identity. First, we're a chosen race. Now, how do you become part of a race? You're born into it, right? You don't, you don't get to vote like, I'd like to change my race and, and go be part of a different race. No, Christians are born into a new eternal race that replaces our temporal race identity here. So whichever part of human divine race a Christian is has no place in determining anything <laughs> in our identity or a determining factor in what we can be or do in the church. Human race has no part of that. There is no distinction, as Paul says, between the different identities of people, including race. He says, Galatians chapter 3, what does he say? He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Our racial identity is, is done away with when we become believers, part of the church. Now, going farther in that verse, he says, there is neither slave nor free. That's roughly equivalent to our work identity. <laughs> I'm not a slave. I'm not a free man. I'm not, I'm not identified by who I work for, who I don't work for, or what's going on. So it's not race. It's not where I work. There is no male or female. That means there's no gender identity <laughs> in the church. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Peter pulls us all together into one new Race. The word for race there normally means a group of people who are biologically related in some way. We are a race together, spiritually related, chosen, precious, select. These exact words and phrasing, it comes from Isaiah 43.20. When, when God was speaking about the people of Israel, that the chosen race, a race of people, Israel, and it's translated in the ESV as chosen people, but, but this is who we are. This describes who we are now. Believers are not to be defined by the color of our skin, not by our birth certificate, our citizenship, our passport, or anything like that. This is all still true in the world, but our new identity trumps that. It's higher than that. And many in the world want that to be so true. They, 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 at least they say that. <laughs> many in the world say that they want that to be true for all of us, that, that we can just go above and beyond race and, and just we can be human beings together. And it's a good goal, 
this is something that God has placed within us as a desire, but as much as the world tries to convince itself that it can do that, there's nothing higher for it to place our identity in. And so it actually begins perpetuating the differences and highlighting the differences and keeping people separate. There's nothing higher in the world, but this is what God enables us to become, a new race of people, a chosen race. This is how God describes the church together, all of us together, in our fellowship and in our unity, a new race who identify themselves together as belonging to this chosen, precious, spiritual race. So much so that we're related to one another and we identify as part of one another. What else does he say? We're a royal priesthood. Well, that's a pretty big deal. As we saw before, we knew that we were a priesthood. He told us that in verse 5. He said we're a holy priesthood there. And remember, as holy priesthood, we, we offer the sacrifices of ourselves. We're continually and collectively offering these sacrifices that are acceptable to God in Christ Jesus. But the focus here is a different kind of priesthood. This, this is a royal priesthood. See, this goes above and beyond just a regular priesthood. Here's how we're set apart, the holy priesthood. We're a priesthood that belongs personally to the king. (laughs) We belong personally to him. We serve the king directly. We serve in the presence of the king. And again, a priesthood is not made up of one but of many. So together, we get to serve the king of kings as a priesthood. We have different roles within that priesthood. We serve differently in different ways, different gifts but we serve collectively the king himself. The wording again was originally used for Israel in Exodus 19.6. God identified Israel as a kingdom of priests, a whole unit set apart. And it was a kingdom ruled by the king of kings. So for us, the only difference is we get to serve specifically Jesus, the king priest, the, the high king, the high priest, I mean, holy priesthood is amazing enough, but now we're even more highly selected, set aside just for use by the king himself, our king Jesus. We serve in this royal priesthood by bringing other people to him. We intercede for people, for the lost, and for one another. I mean, this is an amazing description of what God sees us collectively together, a priesthood, how he sees us as part of the church. He also sees us in verse 9 here, A third way, a holy nation. Again, that comes from Exodus 19.6. Israel was called the same thing. But what does this mean? What does it mean to be a holy nation? Well, what is a nation? I found a definition. Nation is the largest unit of which people in the world are divided on the basis of their constituting a social political community. Right. What does it mean to be a nation? That's a big definition. A nation has to have a government, a homeland, citizenship, and borders, right? That, that would roughly describe what a nation is. Our government is the king. We have a king. He made us. He formed us. He supplies us with everything we need and so much more than we need. He rules us with power and goodness. He's the executive, the legislative, the judicial branch all in one. He's perfect in every role and in every way. That's our government. He's our king. Our homeland, do we have a homeland? We saw in chapter 1, verse 4, that we do have a homeland. It's an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, that he's guarding it, protecting it, keeping it for us in heaven. One day we'll be there with him forever with our king in our homeland. For now, we're exiles living here on this planet. Do we have a citizenship? 
like a nation does. We do have a citizenship. Our loyalty, our commitment is to the nation that we're part of and that we make up. <laughs> we are citizens together of this set-apart nation. We didn't earn this citizenship, right? We are born into it by God's grace and mercy. There's also no immigration into this nation. <laughs> that's, a, that's a big topic for us. You cannot just come into this holy nation and bring any kind of different identity you must be born into it, must be born again, starting over with a new identity by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He is the only way. So we have a citizenship together. We're members of this holy nation together. Finally, there are borders. We have borders. There are those who are in because of faith, because of repentance, because of acknowledging that we're sinners. And then there are those who are not in because they have rejected Jesus and his Father. With our borders, we stand together and we fight, to, to one, we fight with one another. We stand with one another to fight and protect others in our nation. Now, we don't fight against other people. We don't use weapons or fight against the people around us who are not in. We fight against sin and we fight against the worldly influence with spiritual weapons. But we, defi- we, we fight, we stand together and we define these borders. This really is a nation that we are a part of together, that God has made us a part of. And this one is set apart. It's a holy nation. It's different and unique. Have you ever had a kid ask you, Mom or Dad, my friend gets to do this or do that. You know, he gets to play video games all day. How come I don't get to do that? (laughs) Because I didn't say you could. I said you couldn't, right? Because I said so. I'm your parent. I told you you couldn't do that. But how come they get to do it and I don't? Because you're not with them. You're not in that family. You're in this family, right? And it's the same thing with us. We are set apart. Our, our government, our ruling authority, our good, precious, holy, powerful God has said, we don't get to do what the world does. God, how come they get to go do all that stuff? Because I told you no. It's for your good. It's for my glory, God says. The idea is holiness, not individually, but Collectively. God, I, I, think I, can, I think I can do some of those things that the world does and get away with it. Well, maybe you could, but collectively could we all together? The idea is holiness as a people together. We are together a holy nation. Finally, he says we're a people for his own possession. Collectively, a people who belong to God. This comes from both of those passages that, we, that we've referred to, Exodus 19.5 and Isaiah 43.21. They both speak of Israel, but now it's applied to us. We are God's own possession. It's, it, it, it's, it means something that's acquired with a considerable amount of effort. That's what it means. It carries the idea of winning it and, and getting it and then keeping it. That's what God has done for us. He's, he's gained us for his own possession, and then he preserves us or keep us. he keeps us. Have you ever seen a little boy's collection? He's got a little shoebox or a little box. There's his collection of precious little trinkets or things that are so important to him as baseball cards or his rocks, <laughs> right? The, the little rocks that he's found outside and his little pocket knife and, and all these little things. He found them and he keeps them and he keeps them secure and precious. There may not be any intrinsic value in them by themselves whatsoever, but to him, they're precious. And they're precious because they're precious to him. That's us with God. We're his chosen possessions, his precious possessions. But we are that together. And and so much of the New Testament describes this to us. 
as being collective, as being together and, and a part of the church. And we miss it, we skip over it so often because we think so individually when we're reading the New Testament. But think about, think about just one of the most well-known passages for Christians in Ephesians chapter 2. And after Paul says that we, he describes our life before Christ of following the, the prince of the power of the air, the evil one who works in the sons of disobedience and all those things. And, and all, he says in verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved you individually, he says, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive, how? Together with Jesus, with Christ. And so many times we miss it because we're just thinking, me, because of God's rich and mercy, because of the great love with which he loved me, made me, even though I was dead, and that is all true, but it's plural. He says, by grace, you have been saved. The you, again, it's plural. By grace, y'all have been saved, <laughs> as we might say. <laughs> right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace, y'all have been saved through faith. And this is not y'all's doing. <laughs> this is not our doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one can boast. It's a plural collective church reality and he keeps us all together he collects us he wins us and he keeps us and he protects us if one of us were to get out and get off on our own out in the world and like a, a trinket that's lost by the by the little boy i mean there's no telling what might happen to us but he protects us he keeps us together so that we are his own possession so don't run off outside the church don't get away and think i can i got this myself i can do this this is how god sees us together church. His, his description of our identity, who we are as the church. And no matter what we might have thought the church was, a business, a country club, a social community, a partnership, you know, we were wrong and God is right. Right? Church is not something we do on Sundays. It's not a place we go once or twice a week. It's not an event. It's not an experience that we manipulate or control. Church is God's idea of a bunch of dissimilar people who become related to one another in Christ Jesus so that we love one another and we become united in a single purpose. Why does, why does God want us to be that way? Why does God want us to, to do all of this? I mean, really, this is going to set us up as a target in the world, isn't it? I mean, is that what he wants, that we'll be a target? He could use us as witnesses to death. He has done that before and he will do that again. But that's not his ultimate purpose. So why does God do all of this? He could have just saved us and set us out on our own. There's an important reason, though, that he has transformed us from sinful individuals into a collective, united group called the church. And the reason is number two in our notes. And he says in verse 9, we are united to a common, higher purpose. Verse 9, a common, higher purpose. If you look at verse 9, he says, you are these four descriptions of the church. That, that means in order that, here's the reason that God did that. So that you all may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you all out of darkness into his marvelous light. The reason that we have this new identity together as brothers and sisters, as a nation, as a race, a priesthood together, is so that we will be reunited for our original purpose for being created to begin with. 
glorifying our God and Savior. That's what he meant for us to be and to do when we were created. So now that we've been recreated, we become enabled to accomplish that mission and purpose together. You have 1 Corinthians 10, 31 in your notes to help us remember. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That, that's our purpose, right? That's what we're longing for is to see God's glory. Peter says here, proclaim his excellencies. This word proclaim is important. It means to tell forth, to declare abroad excitedly, <laughs> not, I'd like to tell you about Jesus, he's my savior. <laughs> This is a celebration of what he's given to us, what he's done for us, who he has made us. This is good news. An interpretive word that helps us understand is the word advertise. Advertise is excellent. Brothers and sisters, he invites us into the advertising business. We are to be advertising the excellencies of our Savior God. We don't hide what he's done. We advertise it. Now, to make sure we don't fall into the false advertising business, we need to make sure that we're giving people God's covenants and God's promises because His promises He will fulfill, and His are, are better than anything we could ever make up. But He says, the excellencies of Him, the manifestation of His power in His wonderful deeds. It's extolling His amazing work in us, together, His people. What specifically is he talking about? The excellence of, of, of him who called us, who summoned us, who in, invited us to his marvelous light out of darkness. This is the calling of, the effectual calling of salvation. That's what, that's what he's telling. Talk to people and advertise what he's done, what he's made you into. Not just individually, but as a church. It's how the Bible describes our conversion in many places, coming out of darkness and into light, into God's marvelous light. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God created light, and he shined the light into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of himself in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5, 8, at one time you were darkness. Not just that we were in darkness, we were darkness, our identity, but our new identity is that now you are light in the Lord. Colossians 1, 12, and 13, the Father qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul is advertising Jesus and advertising what God has done, and that's what we should be doing. That's what should be coming out of our mouths and out of our actions and in our thoughts and in our hearts and, and all that we're thinking and feeling and doing. We're advertising the great God of our salvation, sharing our testimony together and outside together and individually. We're telling each other, we're, we're reminding each other and affirming in each other the excellencies and, and the amazing truths of God's salvation of us. And all of the credit goes to Him. All the excellencies are His. Our testimony on our own and together is never focused on us. It's all on what He has done and who He is and who He's making us and the change that He's bringing about. Why, why don't we do that? Why aren't we very good sometimes at advertising this to the world and to each other? Well, it may be that we've never known God's grace to us. It may be that we've never known and that isn't our identity. It may be that there is our identity and we've just stopped knowing Temporarily, like we forget sometimes who we are. But this is our purpose together. This is our new identity together. 
You know, it may not be true that all people of a certain race act this way and think this way and talk this way, but all the people of this spiritual race do. We become part of a people who are related and who act a certain way in holiness. It may look different among one another, but we're united together in our new identity together and in one purpose, to glorify our great God. How did this come about? That's number three in our notes in verse 10. This is all due to a compassionate God. A compassionate God. Verse 10 says, once you were not a people. You were, we were, all of us, just in the world. And we were claiming different identities here and there. I'm this, I'm that, I'm not this, I'm not that. You were on your own in this dog-eat-dog world, right? I mean, that's, that's the way it's described. But now... You all, we all together are God's people now, not in the future, not something that might happen down the road now. Right now, we are a people together, a community, and that's the sense of this word. But more than that, you are God's very own people, God's community. That makes us special, brothers and sisters. Now, we haven't made ourselves special. We're not better than anybody else, but God has taken us to be his people so we need to act like we're a different people. <laughs> Not identifying with my personality test or my color. You know, I'm white, I'm black, I'm European, I'm Asian, I'm American, I'm whatever. We belong to God and we belong to one another. Not the groups that used to separate us. Again, how could this possibly happen? What did we do to earn this? To bring this all about? Nothing. We couldn't do anything to bring this about. The world tries and tries and tries to bring this about that is impossible for them to do, but God does it in his mercy. He says, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Another word for mercy is compassion. It was all his compassion on us, all of his mercy. Remember, that's how Peter started out this letter. According to his great mercy, he has caused you to be born again. He is God, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, 2 Corinthians 1.3. That's this God. He, he is the one who has shown himself to us when we didn't ask for him. He, he was found by us who did not seek him, Romans 10.20 says, because he's merciful, because he's compassionate. He's the one who took us who were separated from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world, Ephesians 2, and he has brought us near by the blood of Christ. It was all the excellencies of him and his mercy toward us. Now, it is true that every single person, like we said before, every person on this planet experiences God's mercy every day, his common grace, his common mercy. We are totally and completely dependent on him for everything, but it's common because it's for all of us, not because it's an unimportant thing. But Peter here is speaking of this special mercy to save us and to bring us together, to make us what we couldn't be on our own, to unite us together. Israel understood that concept of not being God's people and then becoming God's people by his mercy. You remember the prophet Hosea? God selected Hosea to be a picture for them. Hosea married a wife of whoredom, chapter, two verse, uh, chapter 1 verse 2 says of Hosea. And she had a son that God named Jezreel, God will sow, he was warning of judgment coming. Her next child, this was her name. Hosea had a daughter whose name, God said, was going to be No Mercy. That was he, what he named her. God said, I will no more 
have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. That's what God said to Israel. Child number three, God named not my people. He said of Israel, you are not my people. In his judgment, you are not my people and I am not your God. They had rejected him, so he had rejected them. And there was no hope for them. They were not a people because they had no mercy from God in his judgment, except that God is a God of mercy. And he said to them that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, then when his judgment is finished, it will be said to them, children of the living God, because of his mercy. God says, I will bring you back to me. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and mercy. He says at the end of chapter 2 of Hosea, I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. And God's mercy, those who were not a people, become a people together for God, a chosen, select, choice, precious group of people that he brings to himself. And formerly, we were not a people. We didn't have anything that united us or brought us together. But that's not true for us anymore. Now we are together, born into a collective new church identity for the purpose of glorifying our saving God because of his mercy. And that's how Peter closes this section of the letter. Before we get into the practical parts of what do we do with the authority of earthly government and how do wives and husbands act together and and what does it look like when we're suffering in this world? And what does it mean to suffer as a Christian? And what does the church look like? Before we get into that, Peter applies this to us. He, tells, he says, you need to know this. Get this thinking into your minds and hearts first. We didn't have mercy from God before, but now, right now, we have God's mercy. He has made us into a new people. Now, in our roles in life, here's how we should be different. So our application this morning, what do we take from this? What do I need to start doing if I haven't been doing this before? First, I need to prioritize our church identity over all other identities. My church identity, who, are, who, who am I in church? Is it the part that I play in this priesthood, this race, this nation? No, it's, that's what I do. That's how God uses me. But my identity in church is part of the church, is that I'm part of Christ's body. I'm part of his family. I take that and I put that as my identity. Somebody asks me who I am, I say, I'm in Christ. I'm in his body. That's not what I meant. I meant, what do you do? Oh, that's just what I do. That's not who I am. Prioritize our church identity over all other identities. Next, find your role in our collective purpose of glorifying God. Each of us has a part to play in this. God doesn't say, you are all our priesthood, and some of you can sit down and not do anything for the rest of your life. Right? That's not what priests do. We bring people to our Lord. We intercede for one another. We care for the people. We serve one another. Finally, we worship the God of mercy. Don't ever let that slip from your mind that what we deserved from God was not his mercy, his judgment, his punishment because of our sin. But because he's the God of mercy, we, we can worship him and we can thank him for what he's done. Father, we praise you and we lift up your great and holy name because of your mercy toward us to save us. Lord, for those of us who are saved, we praise you, we thank you. God, thank you for saving us from our sin and its consequences. Lord, thank you for making us a part of this church body of Christ. 
Lord, I pray that you would unite us together. I pray that you would bring us closer together than any other group of people based on any other kind of identity or truth or history. God, that we would be accepting of all different kinds of people who have loved Christ because you bring us together. Lord, I pray for a greater love for the people around us. Lord, they're blinded by the God of this world. They're blinded by darkness, Lord, and by the sin that encompasses and envelops them and it becomes who they are. And God, they don't know an identity apart from that, but in Christ Jesus, we can give them, you give them a new identity. Lord, I pray that you would use us in that way, that we would be making disciples, making more parts of this body of Christ. And God, that you would continue to work in us to glorify yourself in all that we're doing, in any way that we're serving as we serve together collectively in love for one another and in love for you. We praise you, our great God. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.